0: come to the end of our examination of the life of Jacob. We've gone through Jacob's life from the time that he was born up until now when we find him as an old man. This is not uh, Jacob's death. As we talked about before, uh, the, in the Bible it tells the story of a man until his son becomes a man, oftentimes, and then it takes over their story. So we've known Jacob as a son in the life of Isaac, Uh, We've known Jacob, and in the future we'll know Jacob as a father in the life of Joseph. But as far as his personal story, Genesis 35 is in many ways an epilogue to the life of Jacob. But as well as being an ending, it is a new beginning. As you'll remember, Abraham, of course, was called out by God from Ur of the Chaldees to come to a land that he would be shown He was followed by his son Isaac, and uh, Isaac, of course, by his son Jacob. Jacob's name, changed to Israel, becomes the foundation of the people that God will use to rescue the world. These are Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, and uh, this is one of the reasons that these stories are important to us. As we read here in Genesis chapter 35, verse 1, Uh, Jacob has been on the run, you remember, for an extended period of time. After stealing his brother Esau's birthright, he ran away for 20 years. Last week, as we saw, he returned, and uh, Esau received him again. Jacob, though, was not received by Esau until God had wrestled him to the ground. So what we find is now at the end of his life, he's a broken man who's been transformed. And so Jacob, who has not been a moral character, who's not been a positive person, who has not been a good example through his entire life, is now changed. And one thing that's so important for us to see is that his behavior was not reformed first. The first thing that happened is God came in and God broke his heart. And then when God broke his heart, his behavior changed. Oftentimes we think if we can just cause someone to act differently, you know, if we can put enough pressure on someone's behavior, we can turn them into the kind of person that we'd like them to be. But the reality is that people are from the inside out. Uh, I like what Adrian Rogers said. Sin is an inside job. If, it doesn't st- if righteousness doesn't start from the inside, it doesn't start. If sin doesn't start from the inside, it doesn't start. So Jacob has been sinful to the core, and God gave him all these blessings and all these opportunities and all these good things happened to him, but it didn't make a difference because in his heart he was a rebel. But then finally God came and wrestled him to the ground and Jacob said and said to him, "What's your name?" And he said, "I'm Jacob, I'm the con man, I'm the supplanter." And God said, "You will no more be called Jacob, but Israel. Ruled by God will be your name." And that dramatic twist changed Jacob's life. He went and Esau forgave him warmly. And now he's on his way back home. We skip over chapter 34, it doesn't fit in, it's a, it doesn't advance the storyline. Of uh, Jacob, It's kind of a side point, which we'll come back to in the future. But here we have him coming back to where it all started. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. He says, Go back to Bethel. Now, Bethel, you remember, Beth means house. El is one of the Hebrew names for God. So Bethel means house of God. Um, another name that's got Beth in it is Bethlehem, which uh, lay is the, hem is bread. Uh, lahem is the bread. So it sort of goes together like that. Uh, so Bethlehem is house of bread. Uh, and Jesus comes and Jesus is born in Bethlehem and he is the bread of life, it's the house of bread. Uh the Bethel is the place where Jesus, where Jacob saw Jacob's ladder. Remember, with angels and, uh, ascending and descending, up and down. He said, this is the place where God is. So he changed the name of that place to Bethel. Now God says, I want you to go back to where you were 20 years ago, when you were first on the run from Esau, where I appeared to you before, and I want you to make an altar to me there. I want you to go back and worship at the place where I met you before. Now, it's interesting to see here at the toward the end of his life, Jacob has to go back to the things that God has had him do before. You know, you you think about the death and aging and these different things that we see, and you, you compare this to Isaac. Remember, Isaac, at the end of his life, was on a slow downgrade. He became more and more worldly. He became more and more fixated on the flesh. He said, I'm going to scheme my way into getting what I want. Jacob, on the other hand, looks back on the things that God has done for him before. He goes back to the places God has had him before. You know, As we go through different experiences, the most important place we can go back to is the place that God came to us. So he says, go make an altar to me where where I appeared unto you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. Verse two, then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. And so I want you to get rid of your idols. I want you to bathe yourselves and I want you to change your clothes. This is kind of an interesting progression. Uh, first... And the, the putting away your idols is the only thing that's mentioned again. So obviously it's the central thing, the central thing here. They they were still carrying around their idols. Jacob has been married to uh, L- Rachel and Leah now for, well, 15 years, 13 years. For 13 years, his family has been carrying around their old idols. That gives you a lot of insight into the kind of man that Jacob was. Of course, we know some of these idols were stolen from Laban's house. They've been hedging their bets. They've had God on one side, and they've had the idols on the other side. And as they follow God, where God says they're going to go, at the same time, they've got these other little gods, these other little things they place their trust in. And idolatry is such an insipid thing. Idolatry is how we are drawn away from what God would have us to do and what God would have us to be to lesser things. You know, your life is not worth living for. You know, your personal glory, your personal goals, your personal ambition is too small of a thing to give your life for. The only thing that is worth your life is God. The only thing that's worth your life is the gospel work of Jesus. Anything else is wasting your life. And so as they had all these little gods, these gods that couldn't be saved, these gods that had no power, it was preventing them from really serving God. So the first thing they needed to do was to give their whole hearts to God, to put away their idols. The second thing they had to do was to be cleansed. Uh, And they did this with water. They would go through a ritual bath. Now, in the Old Testament, they did this all the time. They had lots and lots of ritual baths for different purposes. They had, um, they would go into the temple and they would bathe first. They would go into something else, they would bathe first. They would come into contact with something unclean, they would bathe. Uh, They constantly had to show that they were being cleansed. In the New Testament, it's different. In the New Testament, once you've put away your idols and said, I give my heart to Jesus, you go through the water one time. In baptism. Baptism is the sign of your clean break from the old life to the new life. Buried with Christ in the waters of baptism. Risen again in the newness of life. You say the old me is dead and the new me is now alive. This is the reason baptism is the entrance right to the Christian community. It's the ordinance that shows that we are publicly one of God's people. Now, it doesn't do any good unless the heart change comes first. You know, if they had kept their idols in their tents then gone down to the river and uh, washed themselves, and then gone back to their idols, they still wouldn't have been clean. But what they did was they put away the idols in their heart, and then they went and they were cleansed. When we are first, we're saved, we come to God and we say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. (laughs) I believe that you died for me. Forgive me and save me. And then we come as our first act of obedience through the waters of baptism to say, yes, Lord, I want to show everybody that you've cleansed me. You know, them going through the water there didn't cleanse their hearts, but it showed their hearts have been cleansed. When we go through the waters of baptism, it doesn't change you, but it shows that you're different. You say, yes, Lord, I want to be separated. I want to show that the old life that I had, the old rebellion I had, is buried and gone beneath the waters, and I come up clean. And so it serves as a figure in that way. And change your garment. Of course, this symbolizes the walking and newness of life. I'm going to be a different kind of person now. The, um, put on Christ is the biblical command. In Ephesians, it's spelled out a little further as the armor of God. And it put on the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and the boots of the gospel of peace, and the belt of truth, uh, all these different items, breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit. And it's put on Jesus says get rid of your idols in your heart show publicly that you've been cleansed make a clean break with the old life and then put on new clothes to live in a new way they, right here we've got this symbolism of jacob's family becoming new because jacob has become new and now he's leading them into this newness of life so as we see this we of course see our own progression of our life first salvation then baptism then service that's god's plan and we, we see one, of course, a major difference in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that in the New Testament, we understand because the once-for-all work of Christ, we just have to do it one time. In the Old Testament, of course, it was an ongoing ritual that showed the deep stain of sin. But we, we understand, of course, that if you try to short-circuit God's program, it's never going to work. You know? If you try to have... Baptism without salvation, that it doesn't mean anything. You can go and you can take a bath if you want. You can take a bath in front of a lot of people. You can come up here. But if your heart's not different, you're not going to fool God. But in the same vein, if you try to have a life of service, you try to change your garments without following through with baptism, then you're also going to run into problems. You know, if God gives you two instructions... He says, first be baptized, and then go and live for me. And you decide that you're going to do one of them and not the other. You say, I'm going to live for you the best I can, but I'm not going to do what you told me to do first. If one of your children tried that, how well would that go? If they said, if you said, okay, I want you to clean your room, and then I want you to uh, go get cleaned up for dinner. And they said, well, I don't really want to clean my room. I'm just going to go get cleaned up for dinner, and then I'm going to eat. You say, well, I'm trying to do what you told me. So well, you skip the first thing? And if you start on a wrong foot, if you start on an attitude of rebellion, how do you expect to serve God when you've told him no on the first thing that he's told you to do? And so God here calls us to publicly show a difference, to after we've been saved, to go through the water and show that we are his. And if we're not willing to start well, then there's no way that we're going to finish well. But he says, put away the strange gods that are among you. Throw, give your idols up. Be clean and change your garments. Verse 3, he says, and let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way that which I went. He says, once you're new, we'll go to worship. And we'll go and we'll worship the God who answered me in my time of trouble and who was with me all along. See, that's a marvelous thing about God. Is through this entire time, Jacob had ignored God. Jacob had done things Jacob's way. Jacob had rebelled and fought and done so many wrong things, but God was there. He says, he was with me wherever I went. See, God's very, very patient. He's patient with Jacob, and he's patient with us. Verse 4, and they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand, and all their earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. He found this large oak tree, uh, terebinth tree, and he buried their idols underneath it. He said, once and for all, get them out of our sight. And so this is what we have to do. You know, we've got to make a clean break. They gave Jacob all their different idolatrous things. And they buried them. He said, I'm, I'm done with it. I, I'm not going to... You know, sometimes we flirt with sin. Isn't that right? You know, uh, somebody is not good for you. You don't need to talk to them. You don't need to be around them. You say, well, I'm not going to call them anymore. But I am going to keep their phone number just in case. You, know, you say... We, we, we flirt with bad decisions. And so we, we like to leave a door open. We like to say, no, I am never, ever, ever going to do this again. But then you're right there. And until you bury your idols, you're always going to sneak them back out. You know, as long as you leave that door cracked, it's going to come in. Um, i I don't even know how i don't don't even feel like this really needs to be explained i mean once you get once the the camel's nose is in the tent the whole camel's coming in the bible says leave no place for the devil you know don't don't as long as we say well i'm gonna go just this far it's always gonna keep on slipping And so here with their idols, they say, we're going to bury them, we're going to get them out of our sight. With us, with our idols, we want to have Jesus and. When we need to make a clean break, we want to negotiate. When we need to say, you know what, Lord, all these things have been drawing them away from you, or drawing me away from you, and I don't want to have any part of them. When we need to be saying that, instead we start talking about moderation. Uh, I mean, there are certain areas in which moderation is a good thing. You know, if you uh, have a problem with overeating, you need to learn moderation, not starvation. But if, you are, if you've been working in a place where you're being exposed to mercury, and it's, you're getting heavy metals poisoning, and it's killing you, you don't say, well, I really need to cut back. On my mercury, I just—I don't need to be able—I don't need to be getting as much as I've been getting. I need to just to just slow down. You say I need to cut it out; it's killing me. You don't—you don't ever hear anybody talking about moderation in cyanide poisoning. You know, I've been taking a lot of cyanide, and I'm really—I'm just going to go down to one a day. You know, if you have—you've um, got somebody who's got lung cancer, and the doctor says, "Hey, you need to quit smoking." And they say, how many packs a day have you been smoking? Okay, this is how much Nicorette you need. You say, okay, doc, what if I do half and half? You know, what if I what if I chew two pieces of Nicorette and then smoke two packs of cigarettes? Will that work? Can I have some moderation here? If something is killing you, if something is destroying you, you say, I don't want any of it. I need it all gone. <laughs> you can imagine if somebody was drowning and you started to pull them on pull them on the boat you're you're pulling them up and you get them uh, halfway in and they say okay that's far enough I love the water say how foolish can you be but God comes and you've got these idols and these different things and you know they're trouble you know they're trouble the whole way through and you say, okay, well, let me negotiate a little bit. You know, you, you are dying. You're sinking into the pit of the consequences of your actions. And when you get about halfway out, you say, okay, that's far enough. I'm not going to use my idols, but I'm just going to keep them in the tent just in case. And just in case things don't work out. Jacob says, we're going to go bury them. Because when your heart's different, your actions will be different. You can choke that. You can resist that. You can grieve the spirit. But from the inside out, God is begging you to make a clean break. Say, I'm not what I was. And so I don't know what it is in your life. But in our lives, we've got things where we know that if we let something have an inch, it will take A mile. We know that there are some things that we just cannot play with. Really, if you think about fire, if you light a small fire in your house, you're going to have a big fire in your house. If you light a small fire in your heart, you're going to have a big fire. You can't control it. It doesn't operate on your terms. That idol is not yours. Now, on the flip side, of course, we see something about idols. We, we, when we combine this with what we already read, we know that idols are something that can be stolen, that can be sat on, that can be hidden, that can be buried. Why, why would you place your trust in something somebody can take away, in something somebody can bury? So many things we place our trust in. So many things become idols in our lives. But they've got no power. Why do you place your trust in what the thief can break in and steal and what the rust can corrupt and the moth can destroy? You say, well, you know, of course, money's an easy one. It's my trust in my money. It so can take that away from you. And you may or may not ever get it back. It can be buried where you can't see it. You say, well, you know, I place my trust um, in my ingenuity. You know, I'm smart enough to get myself out of any situation. Well, eventually you're going to meet somebody smarter. Maybe you get a a head injury. Your brain just doesn't work the way it used to. Well, the thing you placed your trust in was just taken away. Maybe you place your trust in your friends, your uh, spouse. You say, this is the person that's going to deliver me. They become an idol i can tell you what, eventually that person will be buried. And that can be taken away and you cannot grab them back. So the only thing worth placing our trust in is Jesus. He's the only one that can't be taken away. He's the only thing that's always there. He's the only rock that stands. You know, we sing that song, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But oftentimes, we sort of negotiate, don't we? Saying, on Christ's solid rock, I stand with this foot. that I'm just going to kind of test my luck with this other one. Bury your idols. Give your idols up. It's not worth it. And you look at the, at the things that have kept people from God. You know, we just talked about the progression. Put your idols away. Be clean. Change your garments. What are some of the things that keep people from doing that? You know, the, the idol of pride. People say, well, at least I've got my... Have you ever heard anybody talk like that? <laughs> I may not have a lot, but at least I've got my pride. How much good does that do you? And so, maybe if pride keeps somebody from putting their other idols away and coming to Christ. Pride keeps somebody from being baptized or living a life of service. Uh, maybe just self-sufficiency, because I'm going to do things my way. Self-sufficiency can be taken away from you. How many people do you know that uh, nobody could ever do anything for them? And then something happened, and they were helpless. And when they were helpless, what has to happen? You've got to have help. Uh, All of a sudden, the self-sufficiency that you had is taken away from you in a blink. So we have to bury our idols. We have to put them away completely, be cleansed, and change our garments. This is the kind of man that Jacob has become. He, the one who was always trying to have it both ways, has finally come to the point where he has to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to bury it all. It took Jacob a whole lifetime to get to that point. How much much more could Jacob have done if God hadn't had to chase him and wrestle him down by the side of the river? If he hadn't found his comfort in his mother, in his ingenuity, in his wife, and his other wife, in his kids, in his economic success. If he hadn't worshipped all of those idols, how much more might he have done? But instead, we've got him here at the end of his life, finally seeing. And really, that's what counts. He goes back to the place where God first reached out to him, and it's there that he worships. This is kind of interesting. Verse 5, and they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. They start traveling back to Bethel, and uh, God puts fear in the hearts of all Jacob's enemies. You know, Jacob has been afraid throughout his whole life. He's been afraid of Esau. He's been afraid of Laban. He's been afraid of everything. But now that he's right with God, you know, the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. Now it's everybody else that's afraid because he walks with God. His circumstances may not really have gotten much better, but he's got peace in his heart. That's what counts. So, verse 6, so Jacob came to Luz, which is in the land of Canaan. He's back home. That is Bethel. You remember he changed the name of Luz to Bethel, house of God and all the people that were with him. And he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. This is fascinating. He comes back to Bethel, the place that he had named House of God, but he changes the name of it to El Bethel. say, well, what? What is that? God of the house of God. There's a very important shift that happens with us at some point if we're going to walk in Christian maturity. We have to move from looking for God's hand to looking for God's face. When he came the first time, he said, this is the house of God. This is the place where God's power is manifested. This is what God can do for me. But when he comes back a broken man, he's no longer concerned with the power or the house of God, he's concerned with the God of that house. Oftentimes we become consumed with the work of God, with the, the things of God, but what we really need to be consumed with is the God of the things. And so Jacob now is a man who comes to the same place, and instead of seeing it as a place, it reminds him of a person. As long as God is to us a magic wand or a genie, We'll never be what we ought to be. But Jacob now pursues God for himself. The reason he can't tolerate idols anymore, as long as you're looking for God as God, God is another quick fix, then he can be one tool among many tools. But when you look at God for himself, you cannot have anything else. You know, this is something that happens to people at all levels, but in the case of somebody who uh, commits adultery, if they were pursuing their spouse for themselves, for this person, they wouldn't have that temptation to commit adultery, you know, if their heart was fixed on that person. But instead, they they center everything on themselves. And when they center everything on themselves, they say, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? You know, my uh, wife's not as pretty as she used to be. I'm going to go look for somebody pretty. My husband doesn't pay attention to me like he used to. I'm going to go find somebody that will pay attention to me. My wife doesn't respect me like she did. My uh, husband doesn't care for me like he did. I'm going to find somebody that's going to meet that need for me. But when you give your heart over, there's a dramatic change. See? When Jacob said, okay, God is going to do this for me. God's going to give me a land and different things. You say, That's wonderful. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I need something to do with these sheep, so I'm going to cut these sticks and use this magic to do that. And as long as you're dividing yourself in that way, you're going to have a problem. But when he comes to the place where he's looking for El Bethel, the God of the house of God, that's when things change. No longer does he need God's Bethel. He doesn't need God's place to seek God's favor. He needs Bethel's God. And he's God himself. Because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. But Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, and the name of it was called Alam Bacazuth. Now, this is a strange verse. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. Why is that here? Uh, it's to make a point to you that Rebecca died first. <laughs> Rebecca had sent her son away and said, you know, when your father dies, I'm going to come for you. But it's 20 years later. His father is still alive, and Rebecca is long dead. Because of the consequences of her sin, because of her misguided love for her son, she never saw her son again. And the only thing he has to stand in her, in her place is, his, is her nurse. And she, too, dies and is buried. <laughs> just another idol. Because he had let his mother's instructions draw him away from God. You know, we can have family members that are idols. If, uh, if somebody, anybody draws you away from God, any good thing draws you away from the greatest thing. It's an idol. This, this is a real thing. Um, some of the language that's used in music is uh, idolatrous. You know, the, the people say about their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their husband or their wife, you know, I could never live without you. Well, the time may come where you will. (laughs) That's idolatry. You know, some of it's more uh, flagrant than others. Frank Sinatra said, uh, fly me to the moon, you are all I long for, all I worship and adore. That's pretty bad. That's pretty idolatrous. But we do it in a thousand lesser ways. You know, people say to their loved one, you're the only thing that makes me happy. You give my life meaning. Well, don't say things like that. I hope that's not true. (laughs) Because if you tie your hopes up in something you can lose, that's an idol. And if your spouse, your husband, your wife loves God, they won't want to draw you away from God. (laughs) They want to draw closer to God together. That's a very, very important thing. Idolatry is so dangerous and it sounds so good, doesn't it? You know, sometimes we can use idolatry examples as things that seem, uh, seem bad, you know, very obviously bad. When I talk about somebody worshiping their money, you say, yeah, that's terrible. But how many people do you know that worship their uh, spouse or their children to the point where their children draws them away from God? Well, what happened to Rebecca? When she let her, son, her love for her son outweigh her love for God, she lost her son. If you start putting what somebody that you love wants above what God wants, you're ultimately going to end up hurting that person worse. When God's your highest priority, everything else falls into place. When God is not your highest priority, you end up destroying the very things that you're seeking. That's a hard thing. But it's proven. You know, we, we see it lived out in the life of Jacob. Idolatry. Who is number one in your life? You say, well, first it's my spouse, or first it's my kids, or first it's me. It's got to be God. And if it's God, everything else falls into place. If it's God, then things that God says to value become first. You know, the Bible says husbands love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. If you lay, lay your life down for your spouse and your children because God is first, that works much better. But when things get out of whack at that fundamental level of priorities, your whole life is shattered. And it has consequences. The tighter Rebecca tried to hold on to Jacob at the expense of holding on to God, the faster she lost him. And so for 20 years of his life, he has not seen his mother, heard from her. He comes home and finds that she's dead, and all he has to bury is her shadow or a nurse. That's what happens when we fall into idols. God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said unto him, thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. He re-gives the blessing he's given before. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. This is very, very interesting. When, um, where have you heard that kind of language before? Be fruitful and multiply. Where is that? That's in Genesis one twenty seven and 28, isn't it? I think I've got it here. The Genesis one twenty seven and 28. Here's what God says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, created he him. Male and female, created he them. And God blessed them and said, God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that is on the earth. So then here God comes to Jacob and God gives Jacob the same blessing that he gave to mankind at the very beginning. In fact, in verse 12, it becomes even more clear. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give the land. Remember, in Genesis 1.28, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 35.11, he says, be fruitful and multiply. I'm giving you this land to subdue it. Why is it that the blessing that God gave to Adam, he gives to Jacob again? Well, it's because God had decided to use this group of 12 to become a new kind of people. There's two kinds of people in the Old Testament, Jews and Gentiles. In some sense, Jacob is then kind of a second Adam. He's supposed to be how God brings out the new people who will change the world, who will, through this land, transform the earth. One thing we find out very quickly is the twelve uh, children, the twelve sons of Jacob fail. They do not become that new humanity who redeems the earth. A faithful remnant comes through in different things, but ultimately, of course, Jesus comes, and Jesus is called the last Adam. He is the new progenitor of the new humanity. And you say, well, what about this blessing? You know, this blessing is given in a slightly different form in the New Testament. I didn't put it uh, on the screen. But let me read to you from Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. These are your marching orders from Jesus. Matthew 28, 19, well, even 18. Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. What does that match with? I am God Almighty. Verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? Go and teach all nations. That means go out and fill the world. The word that says teach all nations means make disciples of. God gave Adam the instruction to fill the earth with people. God gave Jacob the instruction to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. But God told Christians under the authority of Jesus to go out into the world and make disciples, to fill the earth with disciples, to be fruitful and multiply. At your marching order as a Christian, not to be fruitful and multiply with biological children, but with people brought to Christ. That's the new humanity. Jesus as the new Adam is the beginning of a new kind of people. So just as uh, Jacob was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth through his 12 sons, Jesus, through his 12 apostles, as the last Adam, said, I'm going to fill the earth with disciples. And you're a part of that chain. You are a part of that command to be fruitful and multiply. So what Jacob failed at, Jesus succeeds at. That, back in Genesis 35, and of course, and lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, uh, the end of the Great Commission. And so here, of course, we see that echo. Another interesting parallel we'll see in just a second, verse 13, and God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So God went up, he ascended up. I don't know, it is kind of interesting that after Jesus gave the great commission, he ascended up into heaven also. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, even a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering thereon, and he poured oil thereon. He makes this altar. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. He comes and he sets up this altar and he worships. Now what's interesting, there's a lot of interesting things here, but one thing is we see also the beginning of the reversal of Babel. What did they want in Babel? They wanted a tower, a people, a tower, a city, a tower, and a name. God tells Jacob, you don't need a tower. Uh, You've got an altar where I'm going to come down to you. You don't need, it's not going to be so much a city because kings are going to come from your loins. You're going to have many cities. And as for a name, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but your name will be Israel. See, the things that we try to take by force from God Oftentimes God would give them, and we would follow him, so the way the people were scattered at Babel, they begin to be gathered together here that 's not completed, just like when Jesus gives the great commission, it echoes this promise, just like when Jesus ascends into heaven, it echoes God going up here. What happened? Uh, seven days after the ascension well pentecost what happened at pentecost They, they were able to speak all languages it undid the curse of babel so here what we see jacob do in a shadow jesus does permanently it's a new beginning in the end is a new beginning the tragedy begins in verse 16 you know sometimes people say well you know if you just get right with god everything will be okay everything else will go okay The problem is that it's not true. In many senses, when you're doing what God wants you to do, some things get harder than they've ever been. You have more problems in some ways than you've ever had. They journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. Rachel's pregnant and is in labor. And it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. Is, don't worry, you're having a child. You're having this son. He's going to be okay. And it came to pass, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-O-Nine. means son of my sorrow. Ben means son. Ben, Son of my sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephraim, which is Bethlehem. Buried on the way to Bethlehem. I wish we had time to talk more about that. Rachel dies. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. It gives a list of his 12 sons now in verse 11, uh, verse 21 through 26. We're going to jump down to 27. And Jacob came unto Isaac his father unto Mamre, unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. <laughs> goes back to Hebron. Hebron is the place where David's going to reign later. And the days of Isaac were 104 score years, 180 years old. And Isaac gave up the ghost and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried. After all this, Jacob leaves because he's sure Isaac is going to die in no time. But instead, of course, Rachel dies before Jacob does, before Isaac does. All the things that he thought were solid, all the things Jacob thought were true, didn't <laughs> When God came and got a whole thing, God redefined his.